What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will is still out of town, but great pod lined up today. The face of Vandy football, Mr. Clark Lee, is going to join me in a bit. And then we're going to talk about weight loss and figuring it out with my guy, Perry, who's got a pretty wild story of how he went about that. Uh, the original plan for today was to do things that I thought would be true before and after the NFL Combine. And then, of course, the AJC broke the story on Wednesday that there was a warrant out for Jalen Carter's arrest for reckless driving and racing, both of which were misdemeanor charges. Police determined that Carter was racing the the other car that night that Chandler LaCroix, the Georgia staffer, and Devin Willick, the offensive lineman for Georgia, the night that they tragically lost their lives. That was also the same day that Georgia held its national championship parade. Uh, the report also added that LaCroix, again, a Georgia staffer, was driving 104 miles an hour and that she was more than twice the legal alcohol limit. The timing of this in real time only added to the chaos because this broke 25 minutes before Carter was set to speak at the NFL Combine in Indianapolis. And obviously that didn't happen. He was able to return to the Combine, but to speak right after all of this broke would have just been total chaos and just a, a bizarre scene. But um, he instead released a statement that day, pushing back on the quote, inaccurate information from numerous media reports. Uh, and that he said all that when all the facts come to come to light, that he's going to be exonerated of all criminal wrongdoing. Um, Carter then turned himself into Athens, Athens, Clark County police late on Wednesday night. And he was released 16 minutes later after posting bond, which was like, I think $4,000. What else do we know about this? Kirby smart released a statement wherein he promised full cooperation with the legal process. Uh, very different, obviously than the way that this happened with Nate Oates and, and, and obviously he wasn't in the middle of the Kirby smart, wasn't in the middle of the season, not with an active player. Um, so it's a little bit different in that regard. I'll get to some more thoughts on that a little bit later. We also know that the AJC reported uh, that Carter's story shifted about his whereabouts that night. Originally he said, according to the AJC, that he was a mile from the scene and then police made the arrest after finding out that Carter was present at the scene and that he was racing in his Jeep, which he got through an NIL deal with a dealership in Ohio or, or something like that. The AJC's report also outlined that police originally claimed that this was a one car crash, despite significant evidence, significant evidence to the contrary. And it was actually an hour after the AJC's reporting of this, when the warrant was issued for Carter's arrest on Wednesday. If I had to guess, I'd say that's the part right there that Carter is pushing back on, because obviously that's extremely damning, especially at a time when Carter is being more scrutinized than ever. Uh, if you don't think this has significant ramifications and you're like, ah, he's going to be a millionaire kind of either way, who really cares? Um, Remember that the difference with the rookie wage scale, the difference between going number one overall as opposed to going number 10 overall last year, that's about 19 million bucks in guaranteed money. That's a lot of money that we're talking about that's on the line here. And I think all this context is worth keeping in mind because there's still plenty that needs to be sorted out with this from a legal standpoint and really from an optics standpoint, because the optics are bad. 
They're really bad. And I, I mean, they're they're bad even if this is as simple as a couple of misdemeanor charges for reckless driving and racing. They're magnified, obviously, because of the tragedy that took place that night. And nobody's saying that Jalen Carter is the sole reason that two people in the Georgia community are dead. What is fair to discuss is the thought process behind the decisions that police believe were made that night. Racing at over 100 miles per hour, 2.30 in the morning, when you're on the brink of making tens of millions of dollars, wherein just even an injury, like if you end up with like a torn ACL, that can still cost you a ton of guaranteed money. That is obviously concerning that that decision was made. Okay, you don't need me to tell you that. Carter would hardly be the first or the last athlete to get behind the wheel and push it to the limit. Plenty of people have done so without so much as a scratch, and others watch their entire careers vanish. Jay Williams comes to mind. Henry Ruggs, more recently, comes to mind. Those guys were first-round picks in the early 20s, and the franchises who drafted them watched that investment go down the toilet. I mean, that, that let's call it what it is. And I'm not going to pretend that the call to find out that a loved one was killed is the same thing as finding out that your first-round pick was involved in a reckless driving accident. But if you're a GM, you pray like hell that you never get that phone call. The irony is that Jalen Carter's best attribute is that he looks invincible. To minimize his impact on a game is a Herculean effort. And it's something that we talk about after the fact. Like when Ohio State was able to limit what Jalen Carter was capable of, we're like, whoa, Ohio State did an unbelievable job. As Will has said on this podcast, Carter holding up Jaden Daniels with one arm and throwing up the number one in the other was one of the coolest, most dominant things I've ever seen on a football field. It truly was. The tragedy that took place on January 15th was the byproduct of feeling invincible. You make those decisions feeling like you are invincible, like you're untouchable. I mean, after all, you just repeated as national champs. You just won a national championship game 65 to 7. You're not supposed to be that invincible in college sports. You just aren't. Don't confuse what I'm about to say as a justification for the decisions made on January 15th. Okay, don't don't confuse that. But this needs to be explained. Athletes, especially as football players, have to operate with the mindset that they're invincible. At least they do between the white lines. Anything less than that, and you're probably not getting off blocks, you've maybe got alligator arms on a ball over the middle, or you're flushing out of the pocket even when the pressure isn't there. What I believe to be true of all human beings is that we all at some point have a realization that we're not invincible. We can all probably point to that one time Maybe that one time in our lives, maybe it's an adolescence, maybe it comes a little bit later, but there's that one time when we can all realize, all right, can't put my body through that again. Just can't. For me, it was back in college when a certain Mr. Jim Beam said, uh, Connor, you are not invincible. Everyone remembers that point where they're like, yep, I can go out all night. I can wake up the next morning. I cannot feel hungover and just pretend like those $2 Long Islands from Kilroy's aren't strong enough to keep me down. And then eventually reality settles in and you realize you can't do that. And if you haven't reached that point just yet and you're listening to this, um, maybe it'll come. Or alternatively, if you personally didn't experience it, maybe it was watching others reach that point that made you realize that you're not invincible, which if that's you, consider yourself lucky. There's a chance that Carter and plenty of other people just watched this play out 
And they had that moment in their lives wherein they realized that they are not invincible. If there's any good that can come from this situation, maybe that's it. And maybe that can be a lesson to a lot of people. The timing of this only blew up the story, obviously. And totally different subject matter, totally different subject matter. But the timing of the gas mask video with Laramie Tunzel before, right before the NFL draft, what was it like eight minutes before the draft started? That That is another case in which the timing of it certainly magnified things. That absolutely scared off teams in the top 10. And I remember that draft night, it was like, oh my gosh, how could you draft someone with character issues like Laramie Tunzel? And that's the question that everybody was asking in the first round, which like you look back on that in hindsight is just such a reactionary thing when you consider it was a disgruntled relative who released the video and it wasn't like he was doing lines of cocaine guy was hitting a bong and if we're talking about things that can worry an nfl franchise smoking weed probably not very high on that list but that night happened and tunzel dropped to number 13 overall lost out on millions of dollars but in the end he still turned into one of the top players at his position in the nfl he's been a three pro, pro bowls he's made plenty of money in the NFL and he'll continue to make plenty of money. There is a chance that Jalen Carter follows a similar path. There is, despite what the current optics suggest, obviously a huge story questioning his decision-making in the pre-draft process is something like, look, we've seen it before. We'll see it again with, with athletes on the road, but this is what we're seeing playing out with Jalen Carter right now. And he could slip, he could lose out on millions of dollars, and then he can just kind of move past it. He can find the straight and narrow and he becomes maybe the face of a franchise, but I'll be honest. Like my team is the number one overall pick. I'm a bears fan. As I've said many a time on this podcast, if you had talked to me a few days ago, I would have told you that my dream scenario was the Bears trading the number one overall pick to number four, finding a way to end up with Jalen Carter, even over Will Anderson. And look, I, I would have had no problem whatsoever with Will Anderson in that scenario. Um, but Jalen Carter would have been my choice, hopefully for the Bears at number four. This changes things for me. It does. I was talking to my brother about this. Like, yeah, so, all right, Will Anderson now? Like, that's that's kind of the mindset. Hopefully get Will Anderson at four. And I say that while still believing that Jalen Carter is probably going to be a phenomenal NFL player. I, I like, I, I fully believe that I would bet on that, but how can you not be concerned? How can you not be concerned about the decision-making? There were Georgia fans who wanted Todd McShay sued for defamation because he claimed that Carter had character concerns all because those people who pushed back on McShay had never heard anything but positives about Jalen Carter. And they were convinced that McShay was just trying to generate interest for himself, which in my opinion, is just such a lazy take because McShay's job is not dependent on breaking news and nor is it really dependent on him making headlines. Like he can just crank out mock drafts and, and have no issue whatsoever. He can be an analyst, say nothing that really moves the needle. And he's still going to be highly successful and get paid a lot of money to do his job. I do think it's a character concern that someone with so much to lose was racing and driving, driving recklessly. And that's going to sound like I'm the old man in the room, but you have to consider these things. Did Carter change his story like the AJC reported? We'll find out. We'll find out. And did the Athens police protect Jalen Carter? As my guy Shahan Jayaraja pointed out, we need some explaining for the fact that Alan Judd and Dylan Jackson reported this for the AJC and then... We got the warrant for Carter's arrest an hour later. 
I understand that this has kind of been a gray area for Georgia with Carter because this happened after the season. And we obviously know that he was off to the NFL. So it wasn't like some in-season suspension thing. And I had Alabama fans in my mentions comparing this to the Brandon Miller situation. They failed to point out that Miller is still part of the program who could actually be like suspended as opposed to Carter, who, you know, his college career is over. So I, I'm I'm not really sure like what Alabama fans were were searching for, if they were searching for more accountability from from Kirby Smart. Um, whatever they were, they were looking for, I, I guess they just wanted to be mad about this situation. And there, I had somebody saying like, you better keep that same energy for, for Jalen Carter that you had for Brandon Miller. And look, nobody's sitting here brushing over anything that happened in any sort of involvement. And obviously mistakes have been made throughout this process. And if they weren't, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it. And that's reality. What does feel similar in these situations based on the AJC's reporting is that once more evidence once more evidence came to light at least from police we found out that a star player was actually involved in an incredibly tragic situation that occurred in these college towns and that sucks that absolutely sucks unless we find out from all parties that Carter was a mile away and again, that's what he apparently originally said at the time, that he was a mile away from the scene when this all went down at 2.30 in the morning. Um, unless that happens, this is going to follow him. And it's going to be something that'll be used to question his character. You know that every front office that he met with after returning to Indy on Thursday wanted to discuss that. And they should. They absolutely should. For all I know, Carter ends up still going in the top four. And the free fall that many are now expecting doesn't happen. Maybe a team will just say like, nah, we're, we're not concerned about the reckless driving and racing arrests. We need that dude leading our defense. Because up until Wednesday, all signs pointed to Jalen Carter being invincible. I don't think we can say that anymore. At least not with certainty. Before we kick it to Clark and Perry, a quick word from our friends at Underdog. So you've heard me talk about this before. Sports betting, it's not legal in all these states like Georgia, Alabama, Florida, South Carolina, etc. Most of the SEC states, sports betting, not legal. I want to talk to you about Underdog Fantasy. Might have tried Daily Fantasy in the past, but Underdog is a new platform that's extremely popular right now. And they have some awesome contests where you can compete for real money. It is a great way to scratch that sports betting itch. We have an exclusive arrangement with Underdog. If you go to SaturdayDownSouth.com slash Underdog, you can automatically double your deposit when you join. Just sign up. You throw in 50 bucks, they'll throw in 50 more dollars. It is a great way to get some money to play in these contests. Every week, you can pick higher or lower for different players. It's pretty similar to sports betting player props. You can put real money on the line. Yes, you can do this in all those SEC states, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Texas, etc. Underdog is awesome. It is super fun to do while you're watching any sport in your living room and you can win some real money. Go to SaturdayDownSouth.com slash underdog and take advantage of our promo where Underdog will double your first deposit up to $100. You can take $100 absolutely free. SaturdayDownSouth.com slash underdog. All right, let's kick it to Clark, then Perry. Now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Vanderbilt coach Clark Lee. Uh, Clark, I've got a lot of that I want to get to with you, but I, I got to start with something a little bit personal. So I used to live on the same floor as your defensive line coach, Larry Black. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah, we were both freshmen in Indiana together. Uh, he was a touch bigger than me, if I remember correctly. <laughs> uh, is Larry still the most popular, well-liked person in your world like he once was in mine? 
um, Larry is a magnetic personality um, and like uh, makes his presence known in the hallway all the time. Yes, I don't think he's changed much. Hopefully, um, you know, there's been a little bit of maturity going on there, uh, but uh, we, we love Larry and we're glad to have him here. I will say, and I, I'm admitting bias uh, with this, but you hired Larry last year, and then boom, you know, defensive improvement. You guys really kind of showed those year to year strides in, in all facets that you were probably hoping for. Besides Larry, uh, how do you make that year one to year two jump? Because we can all talk about, you know, trust the process, but I got to imagine there's some year to year adjustments, especially when you're a first time head coach and you're kind of figuring out who you are. Well, I, I, think that's almost 100% it. I mean, I, I feel like um, th there's two components. The program evolves as I evolve. And I think part of that, you know, um, is understanding what the program needs. I mean, you know, I think you can have external opinions. You know, I, I kind of had, as I had accepted the position and had a, a general understanding of what the last few years have been like, I had no idea um, with respect to this, the scar tissue that had built up here and almost like the psychological trauma. And, um, and so before we could really improve our performance on the field, we had to, we had to break through some of that. Um, and we did, I thought we did about halfway through that first season, you know, where we actually started to play competitively. Um, it didn't necessarily show up for us in wins, you know, that, that was a, you told me that my first season would be a comfort behind last second field goal against Colorado State and comfort behind last second field goal against UConn. I, I would have, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, it was a it was a long year with respect to results, but I did feel like the the competitive fiber of our team started to show up in the back half of that season. Um, and I thought we made strides towards identity in year two. That was really our goal. And I think if if nothing else, year two taught us that we have more power than sometimes we're willing to admit. And, um, you know, the progress shown through the season, you know, I thought we put distance between ourselves and the teams that we should be distanced from. But, you know, when it came down to those kind of 50, 50 games where we felt like we matched up well, but we needed to find ways to win early in the season, we, we really struggled. Um, you know, we kept at it. It's a credit to the players and the staff. We just, we kept, honing in on identity and and we're able to flip a couple of those SC games um, against Kentucky on the road and then Florida at home that I thought were big lifts to us, you know, and then we, we, we weren't able to finish the season the way we wanted. Um, but, it, you know, there's a lot for us to, to learn from that. And I think the, the name of the game now is consistency, you know, how, how, um, how we're able to be true to our identity week in, week out and have confidence in our identity week in, week out, no matter who we're playing. What were those post-game vibes like after Kentucky? Well, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's been well documented that I was emotional. Um, we always meet as a as a coaching staff before we go into the players. It, and I think more more than anything, just a, an opportunity to, um, to, to embrace each other, embrace the moment, celebrate all the work that went into it. You know, we were all very cold too, which was, uh, you know, another aspect of it, but just fun. You know, it's, it's a group of guys that we work so hard together. We want to put our, our kids in positions to succeed. We're desperate for them to have that breakthrough moment that we know they're capable of and to see them, to see them do it. And, and, you know, in performance, they're, 
they're on the field, we're on the sideline. It's their, it's their world. You know, they have to be the ones to go and and pull the talent, pull the performance out from within them. They did that. And it was certainly um a great celebration amongst us coaches. And then that carried over into the team. And I I um my favorite part, um, and this is just, I don't know, I, I think you know, for me personally, you know, the bus ride home, just the bus ride home and the feeling of accomplishment that you can carry with you, the energy you can build projecting forward. And, and, um, you know, that, that bus ride, that trip home is just kind of that last little bit where you can kind of let it all soak in and enjoy it. So we, we did that. What have you learned about yourself as a head coach so far? Because it's one thing to coach a position group. It's one thing to even coach an entire defense, but to have that entire locker room looking at you for leadership, what have you been able to kind of figure out about your style, what works, what doesn't work? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a layered question. I, I feel like what, what makes you effective as a position coach is how you serve your players and serve your coordinator. What makes you effective as a coordinator is how you serve your players and serve your head coach. Um, and I think there, there are aspects of that, that, that obviously carry forward in this role. I, I don't have any issue with, you know, 150 people in this, in this program looking to me for leadership, for direction, that that's very natural. And though, you know, I, I believe that, you know, I've got to stay true to who I am and, and really be disciplined in my approach. Um, I can't try to be, um, everybody's version of head coach that they want, you know, like I've got to, I've got to come in and say, this is, these are the truths that I know. This is the path that I see and, and stay committed. What I depend upon is our assistants to go in and, and really take those, tighten those echo chambers in their position rooms, coordinators the same. And that, that learning about that as a position coach, you can do a lot on your own and, and find progress and success. As a coordinator, it takes a little more time, but you're still dealing with 50 people. And there's there's ways to have daily impact on each person in your unit. Um, I really rely on the people around me now to um, to take the message and the program and carry it forward. And in year one, what I, I didn't really anticipate was, you know, everyone kind of brings their ideas about what this program should look like based off their own experiences. So. You know, obviously, I've, I've kind of built this around my background and most recently was was at Notre Dame. And so a lot of our kind of bones resemble what what we did there. Um, we had coaches from Louisville, from Syracuse, you know, from Virginia, from all over. Um, and and, um, you know, what took what would it took me time to understand is the clarity with which I communicate the vision and expectations for what Vanderbilt football is not, not, you know, uh, some other version of Vanderbilt football, but true to what we are building here. How do I communicate that? How do I level set expectations? How do I hold account and then also drive belief in that vision too? You know, we're going to, we're going to look to to differentiate at every turn and be distinct and, and, and make sure that if we're recruiting that there's truly a choice here, it's not, you know, we're not trying to dilute our product to look like anything else. This is Vanderbilt. This is who we are. This is what we do really well. Um, that took time. And I think as we, as we, as we, as I did a better job of, of getting everyone aligned and driving that accountability and, and building that vision out within our staff, 
what we've what we've seen happen is we've gained traction on the mission and and you know now we sit heading into year three feeling like we're building you know building upon that traction talk about sticking to your identity and being who you are at first when you when you show up and you're going through practice and you're like all right nobody's got a jersey number you got you got to earn this and i remember looking uh, very frequently throughout that offseason be like all right who's earned a number that's probably tipping me off as to whether or not you know as i'm compiling like preview content i'm like all right this guy's probably going to contribute that guy's going to contribute um what would have happened if somebody just didn't get their number like <laughs> would they have gone into the season and just like been like numberless and then it's like week six and they're you know they make a block they're like all right that's it right there you earn your number like how would that have worked you know the balance in all this is um is um you know where where do you where do you draw the line with respect to trying to trying to build a process out um but also not allowing it to be a distraction and i think sometimes that's kind of that's easier to manage internally than it is sometimes externally. You know, I've got to be really comfortable with judgment because in the end, I you know, again, what I owe to Vanderbilt is to be true to myself and to be true to what I believe is, is righteous about team building. Um, so to answer your question, what I wanted these guys, you know, I, I think it's it's very cheap um, and they're also very human, and I'm I'm no different than anyone else in this in this matter but how do we assign the value of our experience so much of it um you know if we just allow things to happen naturally is what do i get out of this and you know what what defines me as a member of this program am i defined by my role am i defined by my jersey number am i defined by where my locker is whatever those things how much gear i get whatever so the attempt here is to say Let's before we before we um, you know define ourselves within our program. Let's let's set an expectation that um, what we ask first is investment. I'm going to invest in this program to to a level of standard that then allows me to progress and proceed through the cycles of the season. Um, and so for me, the the jersey number, and we still do this. I mean, we we've you know I've, I've evolved, and every year I'm kind of looking at the team and saying, hey, what what is it that this team needs, and how does this how does this um, continue to evolve again as we go? Our systems for this this process of earning the right to be a part of the program. To me, that's a lost art. You know, um, what am I entitled to? What do I earn? What does it mean to have membership in our tribe? Um, and what does that membership call for me to do before I again can define myself in the program? So um, yeah, I, I was not going to have someone start the season numberless. I do think that you could do that. And again, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm, um, I'm sure that that's been done before. But um, what I did was at a certain point, rather than them selecting um, their number, I assigned their number and. That was the point at which I felt like, hey, it's, you know, it's not going to be a distraction anymore. We're going to, we're going to, this team needs to go forth and move forward from this process. I will tell you, year one, there was way more drama around the jersey number conversation than, than there is now. I think that now it's become a part of our DNA. And, and though, you know, not everyone loves it, it's, it's still, it's the expectation coming in. Hey, I've got to earn this and I'm going to earn it through my investment in the program.
okay, so you've had like what, 15 minutes to be able to evaluate me. How long would I have taken to be able to, to get that number? Like, are we, I, and let's just say I'm with you day one. Like, am I, you know, a two week into fall kid well, listen, kind of guy? You, like, you've already, you've name dropped Larry Black, which puts yep. you, you know, it's always about who you know, and that's a good person to know. I, listen, you, you would, um, I think you'd do well. I think you would, you seem like you would be uh, squared away. You're on time to the meeting. You were, you know, again, made the connection. You've done your homework. I, I think we're on, on, on course. May not okay. be the first to cross the line, but I could see you maybe getting a single digit. That'd be a good thing. Okay. I'm a B plus student. So that, that works. That's, yeah. that's very on brand. I'm good with that. That's uh, good. I, I think a lot of coaches, when I see them, I, I find myself kind of asking, like, I have to like remind myself, like what position they played. Um, and with you though, every time I hear you speak, it's uh, like, yep. That's a fullback right there. Um, <laughs> Team first, just like tough as hell, uh, ultimate foxhole guy, probably top three worst guys to get into a fight with because not only could they punch you in the face, but also they could probably chase you down, which that's a bad combination. What's the modern fullback to you? Well, listen, the, the position, unfortunately, it was such a dynamic and and uh, beautiful part of this game. It's become the hybrid, you know, and and um, when, when our offense now puts – you know, when the F is put on the, the um, play sheet, you know, that F is like the slot receiver now. So, I mean, the F gets the jet sweeps, the F gets, you know, to run routes, um, the F gets the orbit motions and the pitches on the options. And so I always joke that, you know, with those guys, I was an F too, you know, and, and, uh, but, you know, I, I don't know, we, we, um, you know, I feel like, I don't know if you select the role or the role selects you, you know, I, I'm not sure how that works. I also walked onto the program and I was kind of a journeyman. So, um, you know, they, they, they were probably in need of some fullbacks and there were some gritty dudes in that room, um, at the start of Bobby Johnson's era. And I think they just took all the, the guys that had similar DNA makeup and they put them in one space and said, you're basically a pulling guard in the backfield. Um, but uh, I will say, and I share this a lot, I, I, I need to go back and talk to um, my coaches from college because there was a there was a snap where in the swamp, um, I somehow was aligned as the single back in a shotgun formation and took a zone handoff and was on my way into the end zone, um, if not for our tight end flinching um, pre-snap. Oh. So I don't know where the design was to put the fullback in the in single back shotgun, but um, that's what I used to say. Hey, I was a, I was a running back. I say running back. Now I was a running back in the SEC. Jacob Hester actually does the opposite. He's like, he'll, like any chance to, to call himself a fullback, he'll do it because like, obviously you played a little bit of both, but that's, that's funny. It's like, you know, and now it gets called the super back, which is a cool name. It's a good right. brand, that's but you know, it, yeah, it, it the is. problem is, and, and Jacob, I don't, you know, I, I'm not sure how tall he is. He's taller than I am. He yeah. could super back. Yeah. I'm five eleven and a half. So there, there's really no, there are no elite features here. Um, it was purely, you know, how hard I was willing to run into somebody else. That was it. That's the best way to go about it. In, the, in my opinion, at least uh, you work with some darn good coaches. You switch to the defensive side of the ball as a head coach, which that's kind of a loss in the shuffle thing. Um, but, you know, you get to work with obviously Brian Kelly and, and Mike Elko. This is the number one Mike Elko podcast in existence. Uh, what did you learn from from him being able to kind of, you know, pick his brain at a couple of different places and kind of understand what goes into being able to defend against these modern offenses? 
Well, Mike, Mike is um, unique uh, amongst coaches and, and, you know, I, I, I count Mike as a really close friend. I was fortunate early on, you know, um, I, I entry level at UCLA, I was at South Dakota state for two years and then back to UCLA for three and was a linebacker coach in the PAC 12 at like 27 or whatever. And I felt like, you know, with Rick new on, it was a great launching point for my career. Um, and an important launching point, but, you know, we got, you know, coach got let go. And so we all kind of became free agents and I was really striking out. I mean, you know, and just happened to land at, at Bowling Green where uh, Dave Clawson was and Mike Elko. Mike Elko at the time was like a early thirties or, you know, maybe um, mid thirties uh, defensive coordinator, early thirties. I mean, had to have been, we're not that, for all in age. It's like five years in age, right? That's right. And, and, um, and, you know, he and I really just, it was, it was at a moment for him where he was, he was redefining himself as a play caller. He's always been so smart, but he was retooling the package there and, and deep in study and, and, uh, you know, to, to have been a part of that and to witness that was, um, was awesome. The, the other thing he taught me was, to not be so stuck in my ways. Um, I, I really think I learned how to, how to, um, how to process through structure, how to process through fit, how to find answers through Mike. You know, one of the things that I love that he did was he allowed me, he gave me the problem that he wanted to solve. And I'm talking specifically about problems that would need to be solved at the second level. He kind of presented those to me and he, he let me go and, and, and kind of come up with some solutions to bring back to him. It was a really, um, a really interesting system of empowering an assistant coach. And, you know, when I got my term to be a coordinator, I did the same. I tried to hire the best, you know, secondary coaches I could so that I could really uh, lean on them and describe to them what I wanted to have happen and then allow them to find the solutions with their own areas. Um, the other thing Mike did was he took total control over scripting and this is another thing that I, it was like, a, um, it, it was, it was an aspect of, so, so every practice, you, you, you know, you're running, you know, hundreds of plays and each period of practice has a script. And so, you know, that script may be, you know, um, you know, in, in a, in a 10 minute block, you're, you're, you may be running 15 to 20 plays. And what Mike would do would, would be, you know, he would spend an inordinate amount of time, um, you know, scripting these plays out for the opponent's offense. And he would color code them so that he knew, you know, you would repeat plays at times, but he would make sure that it wasn't the same guys getting the, the car, very complicated system of how to practice. Because if you look at it, what's more important than the rep you're getting in practice. And if we're not as a coordinator paying attention to that, then who is, um, that was a system he handed on to me where I, I really learned the, the power of each rep. And again, as a coordinator, you know, you're working longer than anyone else in the building to make sure that practice is set and it's got to reset every day. So all that to say, Mike was incredibly formative to me. Um, we, we had the year at Bowling Green together, which was the start of our friendship. I went on to Syracuse. He ultimately went on to Wake Forest with Coach Boss, and then we reconnected. And then I was, you know, I was his plus one to Notre Dame and, um, 
And I feel like the three years I spent with them really prepared me to be a coordinator. And again, I, I took that position and I, I couldn't, I couldn't be Mike Elko. I had to be Clark Lee. I had to be true to myself and I have strengths too, but um, certainly his imprint was on the work that I did in that role. And now we get to collaborate in, in our head coaching roles, which is fun, fun as well. Do you get to call yourself a Mike Elko disciple? Is that, is that part of the, the lexicon? You want to ideally have other people say I'm a Clark Lee disciple, but like, I don't know that I want to, uh, you know, give Mike that much crap. I'm just kidding. No, I, <laughs> I'm proud of the the fact that I um, that he and I work together. And again, I am. I mean, so much of. I mean, when you talk about Elko, Clawson, Brian Kelly, you know, John Stiglmeyer, who's at South Dakota State, who just retired, um, was so formative early on. Rick Neuheisel. I mean, Rick. I learned more from Rick just because we have we have different personality types, and so. He, you know, I learned how to give a campus tour from Rick Neuheisel. He was, he was unbelievable um, it, 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 it just weaving narratives. Um, and uh, Carl Durrell, Scott Schaefer. I mean, I've, I've been around so many great personalities, but when you look at kind of what we do here, you know, Brian Kelly's influence, um, but certainly Dave Clawson and, and Mike Elko um, with respect to what it means, you know, when I think about Mike, hey, what does it mean to be a coordinator? What does it mean to find answers and we were we were constantly working through hey we don't we don't necessarily have the corner that's just going to be able to line up and play man to man so how are we spreading the hard down around the field and how are we smart in our design um to give us a chance to take offense out of plays that they want to run that was mike and he was masterful at it and it still is um so yeah certainly um i'm proud to be connected with them. And I'm grateful for the chance I had to, to work with them. You grew up in Nashville, obviously you're, you're coaching where you got to play, but you're so Nashville that you even played at, at Belmont. You played baseball there, which absolutely gorgeous campus, by the way, like unbelievable. I'm not, not trying look, I realize we're, we're talking about two play two colleges in the same place here. So I don't want to, you know, hype them up too much, but it is a beautiful place. Uh, I think everyone realizes that like Nashville has changed a ton in the last decade or so, but for you, how different is the, the city itself, you know, compared to the place that you grew up in? It's dramatic. Um, by the way, Belmont's is a is a beautiful campus, and and um, I don't I you know I, I'm very proud of the year I spent there, and still have connections there. In fact, Rick Bird's become a friend in this role. Dave Jarvis, who's the baseball coach, he and I stay in touch. Um, it's it's a fantastic place, um, and it's changed a lot too. I think Belmont really took advantage of the growth of the city, and you know um, when I was there. The, the, the change was starting, but it was still, you know, I think um, lagging behind a little bit. It's now become just, you know, um, just an, uh, a beautiful campus, new construction everywhere, like the city. Um, you know, the city itself, kind of the probably 15 years that I was, you know, from, from 2004 to 2015, I feel like I would come in as a visitor and um it's like every time i would come in something else was different i mean a lot of the areas that growing up you know were were you know more blue collar or maybe you know um you know were you know just areas you didn't really go as much have become these 
beautiful neighborhoods that, you know, honestly are, are so expensive to get into now. And I think about 12 South and I think about East Nashville and I think about Germantown, um, all of these areas. And you get over to the Charlotte Avenue um, area too, and the nations, all these, these kind of thriving and vibrant neighborhoods that, um, that, you know, have, have really, you know, grown over the last, you know, five, 10 years. Um, it's remarkable. So what then it's cost of living is skyrocketed and, you know, the traffic issues at times are really, are really challenging. But I think as, as the football coach here and as a, a member of Vanderbilt and in, in our central location in the city, um, we have such an opportunity to capitalize on that growth and to be right here in the heart of the town. Um, you know, this was a kind of like a s- small Southern country city when I grew up. This is now, uh, um, a, again, a vibrant, um, you know, high energy um, place. And if you can get past the pedal taverns and, you know, the bachelorette parties, you know, you, you, this is an incredible place to, to live and raise a family, but also a place where a college student can, can plug into a, a lot of really healthy and, um, you know, activities and, you know, businesses and internships that really will set the course for lifelong impact. And so we, we, we celebrate the change and celebrate the growth in Nashville. As a Nashville native, you're the perfect person to weigh in on this because you spent time with Brian Kelly on the recruiting trail. You've probably heard in your life, a lot of uh, good authentic Southern accents and a lot of not so good authentic Southern accents. Please tell me that Brian Kelly had some better reps with a Southern accent on the recruiting trail. And that was just a, a bad moment for him. And, and he's actually really good at it. Well, I, I, I tend to believe that he's, he's, he's gone back to his native, his native accent. Um, you know, I think he had a moment there where he slipped into it, but look, that's, that's um, down there. You, it's a special kind of a draw. And, um, you know, I think he was taken by it. You know, the, what I know of BK's accent is that, you know, high pitched, you know, scream when, when, you know, things weren't going quite how they should have gone. Um, and uh, it was very new England uh, for me. So I think he's gotten back into that one and that'll serve him well. I, I want to get you out of here on some rapid fire, just five questions. First thing that comes to mind, does that work for you? Yeah, let's go. All right. You've had to answer this before. I'm, I'm sure of it, but uh, Hattie B's or Prince's? Hattie B's. Oh, I thought you well, listen. Uh, Nick Bishop is one of my dear friends that we we grew up together, um, and so I'm I'm in full support of everything he's doing. Okay, love it. Uh, when was the last time that you ventured to Broadway? Uh, gosh, the last Preds game. I mean, now when you talk about venturing, I, we go to Bridgestone to watch the Preds play. That was two nights ago, maybe, um, but. Um, I don't, I, as far as like, you know, actually going to Broadway and you'll have to talk to Barton about that. He, he had a little more experience down there than I did, uh, you know, in his twenties, it's been a while since I've gone like honky tonking or anything like that. Yeah. Bridgestone. I feel like you can't count that. That's, that's separate from that area. I realized as I started to answer that you weren't, you you weren't actually asking me what time I went, when last time I went down to Broadway, you want to know when I was, um, you know, at, at Tootsie's or whatever. Um, it's been decades. <laughs> okay. Favorite country music artist right now. Oh gosh. Luke Bryan. All right. 
Okay, that's passable. That's passable. I won't. I won't give you too much crap for that. That's fine. Yeah. You know. You know. I. I. And, and even that. I know that I have a. And I'm almost embarrassed. I know that I have a song on a playlist that he sings. Um, I'm not a huge country music fan. Really? Not that I dislike it. I just it, it's it's not. Um, but you know, like some of the stuff that I'll listen to is a little bit like more like folk. I mean, as I've gotten older, I've gotten my music selection has really slowed down um, from the Rage Against the Machine I was listening to when I was out there knocking heads on the field. But, um, you know, there, there's kind of this genre, I feel like it's like Americana or whatever that that that, um, that bridges like folk and country, John Prine, who's passed. Um, but, you know, th those kind of artists, like I'll, I'll um, you know, I, I, I enjoy that. I was going to say a, a fullback's not just like l l sitting in the pregame locker room, listening to Dolly Parton. Like that's, that's not going to happen. Rage Against Machine. Well, was, that's much better. Yeah. My, uh, you know, my kids always ask about my music selection and I, uh, it was, it was pretty hardcore back in my day. <laughs> All right. True or false. The I formation is dead. False. And I only say false because once it dies, my legacy dies. And so, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, once we end this call, I'm going to see Joey to make sure that we have it in. Love it. Love it. Uh, last one. I told Zach Arnett this, no bald coach or coach with a shaved head has ever won the SEC championship. Would you get hair plugs or some sort of toupee? Just get something up there if it meant winning a conference title. Well, okay. Um, I know this is supposed to be rapid fire, but the way you phrase that question is a challenge to me because what, what I'm interested in is I'm, I'm going to change the narrative. I'm not going to change myself. There you go. I'll be the first. How about that? I love it. There's nothing wrong with that. And you could like you, you made the decision, the conscious decision to, to just be like, all right, we're, we're going off with it. We're not going to let it ride. That. You know, honestly, I, that's what I say all the time. This is a choice. And they also say that I'm going to show up one day after like, you know, the time off in the summer and just have a full head of hair again. And, and I expect that no one says anything about it in the building. Everyone just acts like it's normal and we just proceed as usual. So if you show up with a full head of hair and a beard, that, that video would go viral. Like everybody would be like, <laughs> Oh yeah. Vandy, like Vandy doesn't even recognize their own head coach. It's like, he just, he's, he's that much incognito because you're now synonymous with the bald head, like the clean look. It's the Mr. Clean look. Love it. Love it. Uh, Clark, this has been great. Really appreciate, re really appreciate the time. Best of luck with everything that you got going on, man. My pleasure. And thanks for the interest and always good to be with you. What's my destiny, mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates, Forrest. You never know what you're going to get. Figuring out, now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It's my guy, Perry. Uh, Perry, let's we we are obviously going to talk about your weight loss journey and for those who don't really know you um I, look i brought you up on the pod plenty of times usually if i bring up something georgia tailgate related your name is coming up but i think to understand kind of like your background and like how you how you and i first like became sort of connected do you know, like, do you, the first time we met was Mizzou, Georgia, right? If I'm not mistaken, that came, what, what four years ago? Yeah, it was 2019. Yeah. 
2019. And when I met you then, you were like still in the midst of of a weight loss journey. I think you were still like, you know, trying to trying to continue to make those strides because your your story and like kind of how you decided to go down this path, which by the way, like weight loss, take it for what it is, there are healthy ways to do it, there are unhealthy ways to do it. We'll kind of discuss some of those today. Um, if you it's one of those things where like if you hit a point in your life where you just say, Hey, this is what I want. This is what I feel like would make me feel better Then, by all means. That's the, that's the path that many choose to go in. You had a realization and it's related to Georgia football. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I always kind of hovered with the idea about wanting to lose weight. Um, I, I would, you know, lose 20 pounds, put it right, back. lose 20 pounds, put it right back on. Well, it really was the final catalyst for me was probably 2018 on the way back from the Rose Bowl. The way there wasn't fun either, but the way back, I had a 10 hour travel day, you know, I was crammed into a Southwest flight and it was, it was just, you know, my 360 pound self, I was like, I, I just, I can't do this anymore. So, I mean, right then there, it's like, a, you know, I said the diet starts Monday and it actually started that Monday. That never happens either. Like we no, hear that no. all the time, like, but you've been able to do something that's really impressive. So, I uh, tell people like how much weight you're down and then what the biggest secret has been and not so much secret, but like what's been the constant and why you've been able to keep it off. Right. Um, so like I just said, I was 360 pounds at my heaviest when I flew out there for the Rose Bowl. Um, I'm down to 210 now. So that's about a, that's 150 pounds even. Golly. Um, I wish I could say there was, you know, some big secret or something, but there's not. I mean, I, I've tried every I tried multiple things throughout the process. I tried like the carnivore diet, the keto diet, all that stuff. But what, what I really found for me was the most successful is just simple calories in calories out. And then also putting a healthier spin on your favorite food options, but really making sure nothing's off limits. Cause you know, we're all human. When we make something off limits, that makes us just naturally want it more. You, you, you can't restrict it. Cause when you restrict it, what happens is you, you know, make this thing off limits. I can't have it. I can't have it. And then once you do have it, you just go way off the deep end and just, you know, kind of do too much of it. So what I've found is I've incorporated some of my favorite foods that would be kind of conceived as like, you know, these non-healthy options, but I've like incorporated it into my diet in moderation. Perry will text me Hawaiian roll recipe diets, which I'm uh, like recipes or something like that. And I'm all about those all the time. And you're right. Like you've, you've found this, this lane and learning to take pride in meal prep and, and stuff like that. I know it's been something that's, that's really kind of helped you, which like, let's be honest for, for the lifestyle in the fall, I think, and I, I struggle with this as well too, with this line of work, I tell myself, all right, fall is just kind of fall. We're going to do what we need to do to get by. And you're going to be in certain situations where like when I, especially like if I'm in a press box setting or if I'm in a tailgating setting, I'm like, I'm not counting macros. We're not doing anything like that. We're just going to tell ourselves uh, the proverbial diet starts Monday. How do you find is the best way to sort of navigate that time? Well, it's, it's kind of funny you mentioned that because uh, the way I kind of tackle it, you know, it's like how the, the team, how Georgia has their off season. Well, I have my off season months where I like make my progress. So uh, I really hit it hard. Um, where I'm trying to like cut or whatever bulk or whatever in that time frame, 
January through September. And then once Labor Day hits, I'm just focused on maintaining. So what that maintenance looks like is just Monday through Friday, I'm going to stick to my meal plan, eat, you know, as clean as possible, like I normally would, but then I don't beat myself up about it. And I can indulge on Saturdays while trying to, trying to somewhat keep it moderate, but we, we both know that doesn't happen. And then, you know, Sunday that's NFL. So, I mean, I kind of look at, it, you know, make progress January through September, then you can kind of maintain, but just don't try to like lose progress in September through December. That's the key word maintain. And it's difficult. And sometimes you feel like if you have a bad weekend, you kind of get down about it and it's really easy to kind of punish yourself and in, in getting into this place where you're not in the best, best headspace. And that's why sometimes I think, you know, it's natural for so many people to want a yo-yo. And like for me, like my, my weight loss journey is very different than the one you experienced in that, you know, I'm also five, eight, five, eight and a half. So like I went through this journey going into my senior year of college where I hit 190 pounds and I basically decided, all right, Diet starts Monday. We're going to make this happen. And I did the thing that you didn't do. I cut out so many things in my diet. I quit pop, like pop soda, whatever you want to call it. I'm from the Midwest. That's going to sound bad. Um, but I quit that cold turkey and just said, all right, we're going to get this out of the diet. I'm going to try and avoid sweets. I'm going to try and focus on the smallest calorie count possible, despite the fact that I started running five miles a day and I lost 35 pounds. I didn't do it in a healthy way though. And looking mm -hmm. back on that, I'm like, man, I got to a place where I'm like, I look back at some of these pictures. I'm like, you did the extreme version of it. And if I had to go back and do it differently, you're the way that you have mapped this out makes so much sense because you've seen such great incremental growth. Where did you feel like you saw the biggest difference in your progress that made you say, all right, not only did I just do this, but I feel like I can really sustain this. Um, it was ironically enough, uh, 2020, like when COVID hit that I really kind of got locked in with it. Um, cause you know, I had the time to do the meal prep and, you know, lock in on the nutrition piece. Cause you know, when I first started years one through three of the journey, I was not doing it in healthy way. I was so obsessed with the number on the scale that, you know, I, I would, you know, deprive myself of water cause I'd be worried about retaining water weight, which is ironically enough, the way you do retain water weight by, de by depriving yourself of that. Um, so really yeah, 2020, I really got locked in with it. And, um, I signed up for one of those meal prep delivery services. Um, won't say who it is, but, um, you know, and that was kind of what got me into that routine of like eating consistently, you know, six days a week with one cheat meal. Um, and then, so I did that for a couple of years and then really last year I, I, um, you know, I got really into cooking and doing the meal prep myself. So, I mean, I, I think this is probably the most locked in I've been, you know, stretch wise. Uh, and you, sense. Do you use like the um, and there are a lot of different apps out there, so I'm not going to like necessarily say this one's the best because I, I don't know what all of them are. But basically the premise of like a MyFitnessPal, like you've used yeah, something that, like that's that. The, that's the one I've used. I mean, I've tried I've tried them. You know, the two main ones I've had success with are Weight Watchers and um, MyFitnessPal. But at this point, um, MyFitnessPal is my kind of go to. I pay for the premium version um, just because it helps me track the macros and all the micronutrients and stuff like that. When you say track macros, what specifically do you, are, are you looking, are we talking fat, protein, and then some get into like calories are almost kind of separate in a weird way. Like where, where do you well, look at? Well, the main thing I try to do is stick to my like calorie goal that I set myself. And then within that, I try to make sure I hit my protein goal and stay under the um, amount of carbs and uh, fats. 
So I try to do about my split. I think right now, I think I'm doing, um, 35% fat, 35% protein and 30% carbs for my, for my calories that I consume. How has it made you just feel waking up in the morning? Because that's, that to me is like such a significant difference. Once you start to feel those changes and the natural energy level that just comes with that of feeling like I've made this progress and I feel like I'm at a place now where waking up in the morning isn't quite as daunting. While there are probably really frustrating moments within that process itself, if you don't see those results, still, how has that changed just your overall mood, your overall psyche waking up every day? Well, I mean, I, I work out in the morning before work. So, I mean, I, I get up, you know, it's funny when I started, I viewed the workout as something I had to do. Now I look at it as something I get to do because I genuinely enjoy it. And it's like, you know, it does throw me off if I don't have time to get the, get that 45 minutes sweat in each morning. So that, that is one thing that, you know, helps me get up is knowing I'm going to get to do the workout in the morning. But I mean, just the energy levels, it's just completely different. Like I even notice a change now, like when I'll have my, my cheat meals, which I still have one a week and it is, it is a doozy. I've spent a disgusting amount on uh Domino's this month. Um, but you know, I can just tell just on those days from when I'm eating healthy, it, what I really notice is how much it affects my sleep. Because when I do not eat great or, you know, deviate from the pan plan or eating a bunch of processed food, my sleep really suffers. So that that's really kind of an underrated thing I've noticed is how much my sleep quality has improved. What about late night eating? How, how have you been able to kind of navigate that? Because if you're under a certain, and this is where I think people like, and I, I personally struggle with this as well. Like if you know you're hungry at eight o'clock and you're like, crap, I've already eaten my allotment for a day. Maybe if you are tracking macros, you're like, I've already hit this, this, and this. And then you hit that hunger at eight o'clock. You can have an entire day. It's almost like a golf tournament. You can have 16 holes, 17 holes where you looked great. And then you triple bogey 18 and you're just like, well, what did I just do? And I just kind of like wasted a day of progress. How would you navigate those cravings later at night? Because it's not necessarily that eating at that specific time is bad. It can be what you put in your body at that time of day. Right. Um, so my cravings never really were the late at night after dinner cravings. My, my biggest challenge still is the making it home from my office till I get home to eat my dinner up. Mm. Um, so one thing, you know, I do, is just like a mental mindset where I just remind myself, Hey, if you deviate, you know, yeah, it'll taste good for about 20 minutes, but then it's gone. So that's one thing. And then B, I just chug a bottle of water and that kind of makes your hunger cravings go away. Cause your body will sometimes confuse thirst for hunger. Um, so sometimes satisfying that thirst cringe. So whenever I'm craving something, I always have a bottle of water and then about that craving is still there at 30 minutes. I'll satisfy it in a moderate way. Um, but as far as late at night after dinner, I just load up on protein at dinner. So I'm eating probably between 50 to 75 grams of protein with my dinner. And that keeps me full. And I'm a little old man. So I go to bed at nine o'clock. Um, so then, then sleep kind of takes care of the rest of that. And that's, that's a smart approach too. And I think what, what a lot of people wonder about when you lose a lot of weight, if you are, if you're around our age, I think a lot of people fear, all right, if I lose this amount of weight, then I'm going to lose muscle and I don't want to necessarily lose muscle mass. I just want to be able to, to trim fat, but it's hard to sometimes navigate those things. Have you gotten to a place where you have been able to make that decision of, I want to gain muscle. Here's what I need to be able to eat in order to do that while still being able to kind of trim the fat and be able to lose the weight that you wanted to lose. 
Well, what's funny is I'm kind of still like, I'm not, you know, the body's kind of weird when you start working out and you hadn't been doing it. Um, if you eat in a calorie deficit and eat plenty of protein, you're going to just naturally put on muscle. Cause that's something new for the body. You don't have to necessarily do that bulk and then cut process. I mean, that is necessary down the line, but, um, for me at my point, so I'm still in that stage where I'm still losing fat while putting on muscle. So the big thing is just hit, hitting that protein goal and doing, you know, resistance training. I, I'm in the more advanced stage with that. I know I just said I wasn't in that advanced stage with the part, but as far as my workouts, I'm up to the point where my endurance is up to do it five days a week. But if you're just getting started, if you just resistance day, train maybe three days a week, you will see muscle gains. And if you eat in that calorie deficit and hit your protein goal. What's the number one key then? Because you can say it's the kitchen. It's the kitchen. You can say it's being diligent about exercise. You can say that it's, it's sleep, but what's the number one thing that you've noticed when you switched this, that's what really kind of put this into overdrive and made this a realistic goal for you. Um, well, well it is the kitchen. It's 90% the kitchen. Um, I mean, I, I you can't out train a bad diet. Um, so it's 90% the kitchen and really the main key is just trusting the process and getting out of that mindset of, I got to lose X amount of pounds by this date. It's going to take as long as it takes. But it, I mean, if you just trust the process, it it's the body's got to pull that energy from somewhere if you're in a calorie deficit. So it, it's going to pull from fat if you stay in that deficit long enough. Problem is so many people, you know, get started and then they hop on the scale after a week of dieting and they don't see much progress is they, they get frustrated. Well, it, it takes time for the body to kind of get out of that, you know, energy balance where it's going to, you know, start pulling that from that fat. And like one of the biggest things I've learned is the scale is not a great metric at all. I'd recommend, you know, what I do at this point is I weigh maybe once I weigh once whenever I start a new workout program, just so I know how many calories to eat, but then I don't touch it for, eight weeks. Okay. Wow. Just because, you know, I got my calorie goal. I'm going to stick, you know, my body's not going to adapt to it and plateau within these eight weeks. So that, that's, that works, works for me. I mean, it's not cookie cutter. It doesn't work for everybody, but that, that's what I do just because so many times I'll be having a good diet day or something. And I'll just be curious and I'll hop on the scale and it gives me a number where, you know, I don't like, but I don't like, and that's just going to send me into a tailspin. And even me at this point, be like, man, what's the point? I'm just going to go get Zach's because I'm just going to go get Domino's or something like that. And then just set myself back by another two to three days. And alternatively, it can actually, I feel like it can sometimes work where if you see the number that you want and it's even better than you're expecting, then you kind of go too far on the other side. And instead of mm -hmm. trusting the process, you're like, oh, I've been working even harder than I realized. And I'm going to go eat this, this, and this. And it could just be, oh, well, your water weight's down. Yeah. Or, you know, it just depends on like the time of day that you weigh yourself. So then how do you measure, how do you measure progress then when you're going through something like that? Is it strictly based on feel if you're not looking at the scale for eight weeks? Um, it's feel, um, that's one way. Um, it's also just how you look in the mirror. Um, I mean, you know, give it about probably, I think, you know, if you're a novice and starting out, you, you probably start to feel it in two weeks and start to notice your own changes in about four weeks. Um, and then just how your, how your clothes fit too. That's, that's another, that's another great metric too. I mean, there, if you want to get into the weeds of it, like they make, um, I'm not sure the device offhand, but there, there are ways to like, you know, measure your body fat percentage, but it, but you know, a good, probably the best way is just feel and how your clothes are fitting.
what was the best moment for you going through the process was like that one, maybe, maybe a shirt you haven't fit into in a while or like going to maybe like a wedding or something like that and seeing how you looked in a suit or what, what was the moment? Maybe it was even, you know, doing something physical, like being able to run X distance or something like that. Like what was the, the point in the diet where you kind of realized like, all right, we're, this is, this is progress and I'm, I'm on my way here. All right. So when I first started, um, you know, my, my size from high school, you know, was always a two XL. Well, I had to get, go up to a three XL tall, which I kind of described as a three XL point fat or point five. And I was honestly probably pushing where I could have fit more comfortably into a four X shirt. I just didn't make that. Well, about the start of the 2019 season, I was able to fit into a large shirt. And that was like, that was one great moment right there. Um, and then, you know, I posted on Instagram for the first time and who knows how long and like was starting to get like all the comments and, you know, so that, that was a, that was a fun moment. Really. It's, it's really the, the moments are went from like getting the comments to like, like where I'm looking great. I, I used to need those. Like I needed air to breathe, Yeah. but now it's honestly when I'm like, you know, out and about and somebody would talk to me like, Hey, I noticed you lost all this weight would you mind, you know, giving me some recipes or some tips? One thing I hated throughout the whole process was unsolicited fitness advice. So that is one thing I will never give. It's like, if you, if you're, I'm more than happy to give it to you, but I will never, you know, if you don't want it, I'm not going to just, you know, give it to you. Um, so, so really it's those moments now where like, you know, my, my journey can like motivate somebody else to kind of pull the trigger and get consistent with their, with their diet and their workouts. Okay. So let's, let's then go to that. Well, what advice and not doesn't have to be unsolicited fitness advice, but if, if you're like, maybe let's say there's somebody listening to this and is at that point in their life where they're like, okay, I I'd like to be able to, to lose 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 40 pounds, whatever the number is just so that I can feel better. I want to feel more like myself. Maybe I want to feel like I did 10 years ago or whatever the case may be. What's maybe the the one piece of advice that you would give somebody who's at the very beginning of their journey to try and lose weight? Don't dive too in. Don't dive head first in. You know, kind of change your habits incrementally because that, like I've mentioned, you know, that's where people get hung up. They try to change too much at once. So, you know, I would first, you know, recommend maybe finding out what your maintenance calories are. There's plenty of calculators on the internet and then find, like trying to eat at a 500 calorie deficit to start. Cause that'll put you at losing about a pound of fat a week. Um, just with deficit. And then, you know, add little small, you know, physical things, but don't, don't try to, don't go out there and start insanity. I mean, it's a great program, but it's not, it's not for beginners. So just start moving a little bit more. And, you know, cause at the end of the day, if you, you eat less, you move more, you're going to lose weight. Um, so just, I would just focus on, you know, building those healthy habits, kind of like they're building blocks, just building one at a time, building it on top of each other. And finding those little victories is it's huge. Like, yeah, that's it. And then, and then it's like, celebrate those little victories too. It's like, I mean, if, if you're just knocking your workout out every day, you're already in the, in, in the you know, top 10% because so many people just don't do it. I mean, so, so yeah, celebrate those little victories. And one way I would look at it when it comes to your nutrition, fitness levels, whatever, you kind of want to look at it like a bank account. Each time you work out, eat healthy, eat to your deficit, drink your gallon of water or drink however much water you want to drink a day, you're depositing into that bank account. 
each time, you know, you, uh, you know, eat something unhealthy, so to speak, you're kind of withdrawing. So at the end of the week, you just don't want to be overdrawn. So that way you can still enjoy the stuff you like in moderation, but also continue to make that progress. I love that. That's really good advice. Very good advice. Wish I had that when I was 21 going through it back, back in the day and just trying to do it by any means necessary. Uh, before I let you go, give me a minute to talk me into Mike Bobo. Hmm. Well, <laughs> I, I might need more than a minute on that one. Cause you know, I, I kind of go back and forth with it. You know, the optimist in me wants to, you know, circle back to, you know, 2012, 2013, 2014, that that was also so long ago and football has changed a good bit. Um, I think the thing that probably gets me the most excited about Bobo is, you know, he had a year to learn under Munkin. Um, he's never really had the talent he's going to have to play with now. And when he was putting up those, you know, elite offenses at Georgia, he never really had the defense to fall back on that he fell now. I mean, there were times where we, we would have to score 40 points. We had to score 40 points a game to win some of those games because we just didn't have the – we were never really great on both sides of the ball at the same time, We had, especially in the latter part of the Rick area. Like, you know, 2014 was, was great except for two games we got, you know, we got ran all over – or excuse me, three games, ran all over by Tech and Florida and then the South Carolina debacle. But then 15, you know, the defense was great, but the offense – couldn't score. So I'm, I'm excited to see what he does um, with that. I'm really excited to see the toss sweep and the halfback slip screen enter back into my life, you know? <laughs> so, so you know, I, I'm, I'm okay with Bobo. I mean, at this point, you, it's kind of hard not to trust Kirby. I mean, I think with that 2019 LSU game, he realized like, okay, defense can get me to this game, but I'm going to need an elite offense to win it. Yeah. I think, I think all of those are fair points. And Again, the bet stands. We're going to do Jay Billis, Young Jeezy stuff. If it does indeed end with Georgia averaging either 40 points a game or winning a national championship. And you and, and my new my new buddy, John Richards, shout out Navy Seals. Uh, you will be the two that I text to get all right, like, all right, I need two or three weeks worth of good Bobo stats or something, just a positive spin on who Mike Bobo was and who he has been. And uh, I'll just, I'll turn to you for that. Are you good with that? Yeah, I'm great. Great with that. Love it. We got Hawaiian roll recipes and, and fun Mike Bobo stats from the one and only Perry. Love it. Absolutely love it. <laughs> this has been great, man. I uh, really appreciate yeah. you sharing that stuff. And um, yeah, we'll uh, I'm sure I'll have you back on to talk to talk some sort of tailgating or something like that down the road here. Sounds good. Sounds good. I'm happy to come on anytime. All right. Just a little bit of cleanup here on the Clark Lee interview. The Vandy people reached out. Um, he may or may not have, but definitely did have a brain fart on the country music question. He was intending to answer Luke Combs or Zach Bryan, and it all ran into Luke Bryan. So if you kind of heard that part and then you heard me push back on him saying, oh, that's not probably the best answer you can give. Um, that that is our clarification. Luke Combs, Zach Bryan, Clark Lee is officially on record with those two as his favorites, though. It definitely made it it made its way back to the Vandy coaching staff that he said his favorite was Luke Bryan and uh, Clark Lee. Let's just say he's he's in trouble. He's in a little bit of trouble behind closed doors there. If you have not, give us a five-star review. Subscribe to this podcast. Follow us on Twitter at the SDS Pod at Sat Down South. Subscribe to our basketball newsletter, Blue Chip Grit. You can do that at bluechipgrit.com. Join the Facebook group and hear your name read on air with Figuring Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.